0: Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For some time I've been waiting to deliver this passage of Scripture to you as I have been completing the Ten Commandments and we have dealt with the issues in our congregation. Beginning in verse 1. Through 2 Corinthians 8 1 through 15 now brethren we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia that in great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that all he had previously made a beginning so that he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, and utterance, knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we, inspired in you, see that you abound in the gracious work also. Now I'm not speaking this as a command, but as providing through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich." I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now it's time for you to finish it. Finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to a person." To what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and your affliction, but the way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who has gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Father, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Who are these churches of Macedonia? In the text it speaks of these churches that gave, not in liberality, or gave liberality, but they gave in poverty. They gave to the point of impoverishment for the purpose of joining the work of the Apostle Paul taking the gospel that they had received to the ends of the earth. Well, these are the churches that are known as Thessalonica and Philippi. The churches of Thessalonica and Philippi and Berea the great biblical students, the Bereans. Paul in his letter refers to the Philippian church as his sweetheart church. They weren't much, but they were giving and loving, and and he loved them dearly, the sweetheart church. And so in the first five verses, you have this emotive statement from the apostle Paul he is sitting there telling them, he, he, he's saying that, you know, I, I want you to know of the grace of God which has been given to you in the churches of Macedonia. That in, it, they've been in great affliction, great suffering, and it was out of the abundance of their joy, not happiness. It was out of the abundance of their joy and out of their deep poverty that overflowed with wealth of liberality. They gave what they had. It's a a picture of of the widow's might when Jesus is there talking of the widow's might and says, you know, of all those who have brought all this and that, she gave all that she had, and it was not required. It is not required. This text teaches us something. She gave what she had, but she gave to her own impoverishment. When you read the story uh, of, of the widow of Zarephath and her son has died, and Elijah goes and raises him from the dead, that was all preceded by a miracle of an oil basin and a flower pot that would never ever run empty or dry again for a last meal for they were going to eat, and they told the prophet, how shall we make this for you, for we are about to eat our last meal and die. There is no such call to poverty in the New Testament. The Roman church has it wrong when it comes to the monks and the sisters and the vow of poverty. There is no call to poverty. But in a moment, I'm going to explain to you It is highly unlikely that anyone in here has ever been poor. Has ever been poor. Now, just trust me. And so watch this. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. He's giving them a demonstration. He is preaching them. He is emotive. This is the church He planted. This is a pastor that's speaking pastors do not speak with the voice of manipulation they speak with the voice of affirmation he is affirming to the Corinthian church that he has laid out plain in his first letter to and now has moved beyond that and he has come to this place of where he is giving advice not a command but I anticipate myself in verse 4 being begging us with much urging for the favor and participation in the support of the saints. And this, not that we had expected it, but first they gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So he's very emotive in this. He, he's about to teach them a lesson that quite possibly they have the idea or he has the idea they may misunderstand. He's going to show them something about community. And so I want you to write this down. Number one, no believer is an island. There's, I, I do not say this. I say this to God's glory and to my shame. No one has ever tried to be an island unto himself more than me that I have ever ministered to. It is both the greatest strength of mine where I can think and my marbles can turn and it is of the greatest sadness to those that know me and love me including my family here but I want you to understand no believer is an island and so whenever you separate from us or you decide not to come or you find something else to do trust me I'm an expert at spotting it I'm just gracious enough I haven't said it to you that's gonna change today there is not a lot of time left no believer is an island unto himself right down this verse Colossians 2 verse 19 the Bible says he has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow brothers and sisters what you see here at the beginning of this passage is the Corinthian church has been upheld and the ministry has been furthered and the pastor Titus has been able to be sent Because of the giving and connectedness of the Bereans, the Thessalonians, and the Philippians. They are part of a body. And belonging to the head is is that individual believers grow the most when they are part of the corporate growth of the whole body. That means when you are together here. When you are together here. We serve wheat on Sunday morning, but the finest wheats are in the evening. That is where that's, That has always been the legacy. That's where the quarrying is done. We will meet tonight, God willing. If the rapture happens, I'll be one of them the most shocked that it did. But if it happens today, then I guess I won't be here, or, or to my dismay, I will be, but I will be here. For our video and for the lesson tonight which is I believe in God the Father God Almighty maker of heaven and earth God Almighty maker of heaven and earth is the subject of this evening's lesson it's already prepared but brothers and sisters I must tell you this if you're going to care for the body of Christ you're going to care for the body of Christ. You must know it is a sign of maturity. To care for the body of Christ is a sign of maturity. So let me tell you how that relates to each one of us. That relates to us we need to be together. We need to be together as a body. When I was sitting at lunch the other day at the Quality Inn, there was a I was sitting by the best friend, my best friend in the whole world. And I have lots of best friends. I'm a blessed man. I have lots of best friends. But Johnny's my rock, and then there was Truett. And he's my other very, very best friend in the world. But I'm going to tell you something. There was somebody gone. And I haven't got over it. I don't even want to go. I have to go. It is the calling of the minister to go minister to that family on Tuesday. I have to. I don't want to. I am sad. I've shaved my hair off. I am sad. I am heartbroken. My friend is gone. And I know this much. If Bill White can come up here and a 90-year-old woman can get his wheelchair out of the back of the car and push him in, we are lacking much in maturity if we, for whatever excuse we give ourselves, do not put in priority eating the fine wheat of God's Word. And that is because we think we're islands unto ourselves. Remember Jesus told Martha, Mary has done the better thing to learn. Now Bill White doesn't sit at the feet of me anymore. He sits at the feet of the Master. And I would hope to think He has said, thank you for giving me that last shepherd you gave me. But either way, I hope he's met my dad by now. And some other folks say, now I understand why he was such a yog. But I'm going to tell you something. You can't do this alone. And the Bible says if you do, if you do. The Bible says this. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 4.14. I want you to write it down. You are like driftwood. Do you know what driftwood is? Driftwood is just gets carried away by the flow. Well, maybe your river's Fox News. You just get carried along. Maybe yours is this is something else you listen to. You put into your head, and all the, and you just get carried away. You can't do that when you're connected to the body. Where the foot goes, the head goes also. Where the pinky goes, so does the hip. That It all goes together, and that's the idea here. Every part of the body is vitally connected by the joints and lig- ligaments. And here's the point. Here is a church that's completely impoverished, that blesses a church that is completely is a church that no one would want to go pastor today. I would. I'd get to yell a bunch. <laughs> I would go to the Corinthian church. I was always asked, would you go pastor First Baptist Corinth? I'd pastor any of them. It would be a ministry of correction. But I'm going to tell you, they've been corrected. They have received, Paul says in here, he speaks of their zealousness, their understanding, their knowledge, their prayerfulness. These these are a people that have been completely changed because Titus went there preaching the word and establishing the elders. And so the support for them came from an impoverished church that did not sit out there in a place where it said, We are victims, we don't have enough. They did not give out of their poverty, they gave out of their liberality. That's what we do in the church, emotionally with people. We are not islands unto ourselves. And let me tell you this no believer's an island because the whole working gloriously and fruitfully together in harmony literally brings the picture of heaven to earth. And so you have that picture there with the, uh, the very beginning of this passage. And so what happens? He goes from this emotive thing to an urging. Look with me at verse 6. So, so we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning so that he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. What is the gracious work? The liberality. It's not really liberality. It's faith. It's the liberality of grace. That he would be urged him that he would bring this in completion of this gracious work in you as well but just as you abound in everything, look, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness. I mean, this is an amazing transformation from what is taking place in First Corinthians letter. These people have gone from not even being able to discipline their own church members who had church members sleeping with their stepmoms. If you haven't read it in the paper yet, I will not name it, the largest church just south of here was exposed this week for having covered up for 20 years the molestation, the abuse, and whatnot of women for 11 years and sending the minister to another church where he did the same thing. And the only reason it's public is because the man just got sent to federal prison and the elders... And the pastor of that church, I hope to hear when I leave here, resign this morning. But I can assure you, because they practice the American civil religion, it will be anyone that speaks against us. Let all be damned. It's us against you. You cannot permit that. We can say how grievously sorry you are. The ministry is ruined. And I don't believe it's the pastor's fault, but I will tell you this. He is responsible before God. And they didn't do anything because there's so much money to be had. It's better to be poor than rich. It's devastating. Second one in two months, same county. Devastating. And so what happens here in this passage? They had been set up. They had been taught. They had been ministered to with integrity. And now he urges them right here in their giving. Now I want you to understand something right now. Everybody look at me. I'm not talking about money. If you've been around me, you know that is the one thing. I could care less about. I have greater riches than I have money. And when you're spiritually rich material things mean nothing to you. But you can also become careless because of that. My plea to you is not about giving. My plea to you of money, my plea is about you giving yourself. His plea is giving money. That's the meaning of the text it is not my purpose of the text but that is his meaning so if you and so what happens is this he says in verse 7 but just as you abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love we inspired in you see that you abound in this gracious work also what is he asking them to do he is asking them to be giving Just as they have been abounding in everything, in their faith, in their utterances, in their knowledge, in their earnestness. Listen, if you're not abounding in knowledge, in earnestness, in faith, and in utterances, then what can you give? This text actually shows you. So You see, this is an encouraging text. It's not a condemning text. And it's not a commanding text. It's an exhortation. And I want you to see this. And this is what just blows my mind. I was sitting at Cracker Barrel reading this and I nearly just fell on the floor crying. Look at verse 12. It says, For if the readiness is present in you, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person lacks that you give. So many will not move forward in their spiritual life because they say, I don't have time, I don't have this, I don't have that, I can't do this. Or they're just stingy. Now, if you're stingy, you're not a person of very great faith. That's, but I'm not going to deal with that. But if you make every decision based upon, well, I can't because I lack, what Paul is teaching here is you don't give Because of what you lack, you give because of what you can. And if you're willing and you're ready, then there's a promise. It says God will use it. The two mites of the widow, the widow's mite made no difference whatsoever to the temple or to anything. But it is her offering and her offering alone that we still talk about that makes a difference in people's lives. You may have a widow's mite of time. What do you do with it? I'm going to tell you the truth. You're never going to get time back. You're never ever going to get more space. You can junk up everything you've got. You will never get more space. It's an issue of physics. Money comes and goes. It just comes and goes. Time and space, you'll never have it again. You'll never have the. You don't wait. You know that somebody was saying the other day. I read this somewhere. I heard it. It says, you know, a man I was with in in post. He said, "Brother James, don't wait until the funeral to send the flowers. It's time for families to quit just gathering at funerals. It really is. We just had our first church funeral. It won't be the last." And so I want you to write this down. If you desire to give and you're ready to do it, then give what you have and God will use it. Give what you have and God will use it. I'm not saying give give me your house, give me your car, give the church something. That's not talking about if you have it, give it. To him, him he will use it. You don't have to wait till you have enough to say. Well, I don't. i, I remember this preposterous statement when I was young. Gur said, "Well, I don't tithe because I don't make. I have too much debt. I can't give a full tithe, so I just don't tithe." I, I, I was like, "Yeah, you shouldn't." Dave Ramsey even says you shouldn't do that. You know, that's—that's that's, you shouldn't. You got to get out of debt first. That's not what's said here. There's no command, and there's no command here. This is advice wisdom. So continue going on. He says he tells us God'll use us. So look at look right here with me where it says in verse 8 it says I am not speaking this as a command but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So here's the idea. People today want to give because they get a tax benefit because of the Trump tax cuts none of you probably make enough money in this church to get a a deduction for your charitable contributions. So that's no reason to do it. But it never was the reason to do it to begin with. Uh, uh, So so look at this. Look at Paul here in this verse, he is appealing. I'm going to read it from the Revised Standard. He says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. He's saying, you you guys have learned, you're eager, you speak, you do, now I'm going to test your love by the earnestness of others. And so what does he talk about? He is talking about an overflow of generosity and he uses this word advice. And I want you to understand this so you do not misunderstand it. We're talking about advice. So the first thing is this. He is, here's what it is. He is giving advice, not a command. Write that down. He's giving advice, not a command. And their appropriate response is grace and willingness to advice is grace and willingness. Second, his words are not a call to give more than they have, but to complete from their existing resources that what they have desired a year earlier indeed and had begun to do so. So here's what I want you to understand. The church had desired to do something. And they said, we have desired to support Titus and so forth in this ministry. And they said, this is what we want to do. We're ready to do it. And they didn't do it. So where at the beginning he's emotive, now he's cajoling. He's cajoling them. You said you would do this. You haven't done it. Now it's time for you to do it. You made a pledge before God. There are others that need the assistance that you have to offer. I'm not asking you to go into poverty. I'm asking you to fulfill your covenant. And so this is how Paul does it. And then the third thing is here is the relief who is this money going to this relief is going to the church at Jerusalem you're saying what that's that's like going to that's like going to the richest church in the state the relief is for the Jerusalemites And it's not a cost of, but it's not to be given at the cost of impoverishment. It is for equality between the Jerusalemites and the Corinthians. This is the basis on which people believe the Bible teaches socialism. I'm going to show you in just a moment that has nothing to do with this. The Bible doesn't teach anything about socialism. And so what takes place? He says this. He says this is not a command. Rather, it is an exhortation that the collection you are to give proves the genuineness of the love we believe that you have and proving has a positive intent. It will bring about a positive result. And so whereas obedience to a command of the Lord would be obligatory, listen to me, participation in this collection is not It's not obligatory. It is a free and spontaneous response. Look at verse 3. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord. Totally voluntary. And they gave to a situation of need and demonstration of love and the evidence of the grace of God towards and within them as givers. Verse 1, now the brethren we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Look at verse 7, but just as you abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love, we inspire you, in you that you also abound in this gracious work. Now the Philippian church gave their money. They were a church that was being persecuted at the time. They were hauling their children out and taking them away. They were a church that was having a difficult time that some only wish would happen here so they could justify their ignorant fear. And yet this is what they did. They could not send anybody. We live in a time of peace. Paul is telling them here, support the church at Jerusalem. The way this text is speaking to this pastor is whatever you have to give, be ready. If you're ready to give it, give it and God will use it. Whether it's your service of hanging pictures on the wall, cleaning toilets, sweeping the floor, vacuuming up crickets, if it is cleaning off the top of tables, if it is helping prepare the Lord's Supper, if it is you want to say, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it financially. Hey, more power to you. God knows we need it. And so let me show you something. Number two. Number two, understand our riches our riches in Christ. I want you to understand our riches in Christ. Christ, Look at verse nine 8. I am not speaking this as a command, but proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Verse 9, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich for your sake, He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Let me say something about the statement I said a moment ago about being poor. You cannot truly be poor until you have been rich. I want you to think about that. It's one thing to grow up with nothing but it's a whole nother thing to have everything and to lose it all. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But not considering equality be something to be hung on to, he emptied himself of his glory, not his divinity, his glory. And he came onto the earth and took on the flesh of a sinful man, yet without sin. And at every point of Jesus' life, He was poor. Do you know why He was poor? We don't know if Jesus was poor economically. But do you want to know why He was poor? He could walk down the street and He knew what everybody was thinking in their minds. He knew what everybody was doing behind closed doors. He knew all of it and He couldn't do... And he, or He limited Himself to not do anything about it. And He walked around in this flesh that has body odor. Can you imagine the first time... But I was sharing with a brother the other day, that, and I'm going to share this at Easter, that even in the, in the grave, the body was dead, but he was fully conscious. Can you imagine laying in a dead body? <clears throat> your God. And you're fully conscious. And you have come from the place of straight, absolute, glorious perfection. Now, no one's ever been poor until you've lost it all. And that's what we know in this verse. It says here, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. That's an interesting phrase, that through His poverty you might become rich. Notice it does not say, because you are poor, therefore you'll become rich. No, all it's saying is that whatever your state is, He's going to make you rich. And the Bible says that we are co-heirs with Him, so all that is His his will be ours, except His throne. Isn't that something? It doesn't even speak about our poverty. But He became poor that we might have His riches, and that we may be rich. But rich in what? Well, listen to this. Write down Philippians 4.19. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And it's not going to meet your needs by your self-sufficiency. He's not going to meet all your needs by your idea, well, I've got to be a steward of what I have. He's not going to re- He can take it like that. All those people that have been buying Teslas, been burning their houses down. It's terrible. sad. They catch on fire in the garage, they lose everything. Who would have ever thought that would happen? be here today gone tomorrow. Remember the the foolish man that stored everything in his barns and said look all that I've built he's got his rainy day fund and everything else. What happened? He said today surely your life will be taken from you. You can be here today and tomorrow you can be a 33 year old professor at SMU and be told you have terminal cancer with two little girls and be dead in a month. You won't care about your storehouses and all the time that you had to go get your oxes out of the ditch. And I, there's, and I mean that with all sincerity. There are times oxes are in the ditch. The Bible permits that. But there's a whole lot of excuses that are given. We must not forget the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich for our sakes, He became poor. He has become poor so that others might be rich in Him. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10 says, As poor, yet making many rich. It goes on to say, As making poor, or as poor, making many rich. Listen to this. I love this. We may be sure that no one will be allowed to become poor in Jesus Christ until they have first become rich. Let me say it again. We may be sure that no one will be allowed to become poor in Him until they have become rich in Him. And if you're rich in Him, you can never be poor. That's a quote from a man named William Still who pastored one church 52 years. And the entire time from when he started to when it ended, the church declined in its offering and in its attendance. But... By the time his ministry was done, if they assembled the people that that church had impacted, it would have filled up every pew and seat and square in Aberdeen, Scotland because it was a church that decreased locally and expanded globally. And to this day, many still listen. Why do I listen to him? Because William still pastored one people. For the rest of his life and I have said, I've said I've been here however long I've been here I'm a pastor of these people 52 years so I'm gonna have to get to, into hundreds and that's fine I want to ladies and gentlemen write down 2nd Corinthians 4 verse 12 the Bible says that Jesus Christ became poor that you could become rich let me tell you something it says in 2nd Corinthians 4 12 death works in us but life in you I think one of the greatest dangers today is a pastor who is wealthy. I really do. I'm, I'm becoming more and convinced of this. Uh, I, I think he may be better off bankrupt, but I'm gonna say something about that in a moment. I'm gonna say something about that in a moment. You and I The Bible says here that Paul is saying death works in us but life in you. That's what I hope when they lay me out. They'll say this is what James did. He pastored by the hands that were attached to his heart to God and death worked in him that life may be in us. That's the only reason I have to write a book because I have to tell you all the stuff that's going on that you have no clue about. You wouldn't believe it anyway. When Jesus, and so I want you to write this down and look at me. Now the Charismatics and the Pentecostals would never preach this, what I'm about to say, but it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ does not turn stones into bread. And we don't either. When Jesus Christ was tempted having been tempted for forty days without food or water. It says, and he a hungered," Now a-hungered is a new is a King James word that means your belly button is tapping on your backbone. You're so hungry. You got the thumps. And the devil tempted him to turn the stones into bread. Jesus did not do that. Instead, he quoted scripture. He said, I will live by my Father's word. That is the bread for me. Everybody wants to extricate themselves from their difficulty. You need to write this down in your life. We don't turn stones into bread. That's not the way it works. Death is at work in some of us that some of you may live. The men God has sent to this earth to be preachers of the gospel men who pay it all they don't turn stones into bread they faithfully serve when everything else has fallen around and that's the way it should be 1 Corinthians chapter 1 just move on let's just go on so I've shown you two things so far. I'll speed up now. No believer is an island. No believer is an island. And we need to remember our, understand our riches in Christ. Now look at verse 10. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. There is a difference between wanting and doing. There is a difference between wanting and doing. And so I want you to write down number three. When when divine pleasure and human pleasure coincide. When divine and human pleasure coincide. He says, you begin not only to do but rather to want. This is a gracious work. When the divine and the human pleasure coincides listen to this write down Philippians 2 13 for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose if God places something on your heart to do for him do for his church do for his people then you're to do it Mary Jo gave me a book several years ago I think it was called seven seconds or ten seconds Talks about it's in that time that a person will make the decision whether to do it or not, and it's before all the reason, rationality, and carnality influence. It's it just do it. But the problem, the danger of telling you to do that is that if you're not steeped earnestly in the scripture, you'll do something stupid. And then you'll blame God for it and you will leave him to open shame when in fact, when you give account for it, God will say, I didn't tell you to do that. You just think you did it. I did, because you ate an ulcips burrito. No. That's why you need to know his word. You can't you can't you just can't do it any other way. So let me tell you what happens when your divine when divine pleasure and your human pleasure coincides in this context. You must ask yourself this question because the Philippian church and the churches at Macedonia made this conclusion and now he is conjoling the church at Corinth to do the same and that is simply this the goal of your pleasure should be the Lord's pleasure I've met a lot of people in the course of ministry that have had affairs that have been addicted to alcohol, gambling drugs and everything they all have one thing in common none of them are happy and there is a difference between pleasure and happiness. Many people forsa- for misunderstand that the feelings of pleasure is what happiness is. It's not. They're miserable. They're addicted. They're broken. They're hurting. And we live in a culture you can't talk about it. You know, you can call a man that goes around and plays with a player that 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 goes around and has multiple sexual partners, call that guy a stud, a stand-up guy, whatever. You call a woman that does that, you call her a whore. The culture is very, very messed up on those things. And now it's all about children. Be animals soon. And then it'll be just like it is in Japan. Avatars. In Japan today, they produce more adult diapers than baby diapers. Their culture is dying. In America, the African-American culture is dying because of abortion. The very people Miss Sanger set out to kill from the beginning. And it is the idea that, oh, I'm going to be with my homie, he makes me happy. It's pleasure. And we've mistook pleasure for happiness, or happiness for pleasure. And I'm going to tell you, the the root of all of this is simply this. True satisfaction and pleasure in your life is going to become when it is the Lord's. And it should be the goal. And so we tend to think that God keeps us down. Many people talk about that. There's a book that's coming out right now by a brilliant scholar out of Reformed Theological Seminary. I can't remember its title. I don't want you to buy it because you don't have time to read it. But it's talking about, it's a book written to people that think being a Christian means I need to be miserable. I'm not miserable. You don't have to be miserable. That's not what it is. Christianity is not about keeping us down. We shall see the perfection of this total will for us and all the people only when all things are revealed in glory. And one of the things I know about my dear friend that I was at the foot of his casket the other day, he wasn't in the box and he got to see everything. And I wonder if he even went up to God and said, Hey, I've got a question for you. And God turned around and said, I know what the answer is. Wrong. Because every time Bill asked you a question, what was the answer? Wrong. He always asked you a question and your answer was going to be wrong. If if it was this way and he went up, why should I let you into my heaven? Bill would have turned and looked at St. Peter and said, What are you doing here? Peter would have given an answer and he would have said, Wrong! It's Jesus Christ! Right? We shall see the perfection of His total will for us in glory. And until then, we must live our lives where we trust and believe Him. And that looks like this in its opposite. Stinginess. The stingy life is the life that lacks trust and belief. Some folks that I've run across, I don't know who has hurt you so bad. Who has betrayed you so bad? And why you want to carry that dead corpse around with you all the time. You remember I told you about Jesus Christ was conscious in the grave even though the body was dead? You know how they did capital punishment a long time before they figured out how to cut your head off and do all that stuff? You did a capital offense, they just tied the dead body to you and you, rotted, you rode around, walked around, whatever that dead body you killed, and guess what eventually happened to you? Your body became filled with putrid putrefaction and it killed you. Can you imagine Jesus Christ lying in the grave and that body of His going through putrid putrefaction? And the Roman church, by the way, just produced a 3D image of what Jesus looked like in the grave under the so-called Shroud of Turin. It was on the news yesterday. I said, this is terrible. It's a violation of the second and third commandment. And they've got this chap that they have 3D lasered in the Shroud of Turin, which is a nothing, right above it. And it looks like what would supposedly be some... Uh, Aramaic or Jewish uh, 33 year old carpenter uh, in a tomb and this will be venerated I can assure you by the Romans it will be venerated it is an abomination to God for thou shalt make no graven image and that includes 3D printing brothers and sisters we have what do we have? We have we are not by ourselves. We are in this together. Yesterday I was at the bank or the other day I was at the bank and the, and I was having to have a Hard conversation, the banker, to me about some things that I needed to get taken care of. And then the banker was telling me about some hard deals that he's having to take care of in his home that's not the same kind of poison that's in my home. And then, and then he, this, my, this banker was telling me about this person he met that is not even 50 yet, eat up with cancer, is going to be dead. And, and, said, and, and he's saying, I, I, and I think my problems are bad. And I told him and I looked at him like this and I said, that's why we're in this together. I've got these problems, you've got your problem, they've got those problems, but we're in this together, we can do more together. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I've never thought of it that way. How much more the people of God? That is the effort and the essence of being the people of God. Our love is in giving. And I've got to tell you this. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for the meal that you provided the whites. I have not in Cook County in 11 years ever seen a funeral spread like that. The last time I ever saw that was in Post, Texas. I said it can be done and it was done. And all of you that did it, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that. You ministered to a lady whose gift is hospitality beyond measure and her family. And oh, it was so good. My only complaint was we were missing a few pies, but I understand there were other things going on. I know where to call to get one. Probably just got one ordered. One more thing I want to give you. When the divine and human pleasure coincide, I want to give you this next part. we need to fulfill our commitment. Look at verses 11 and 12. He's saying here, but now finish doing it also. Brothers and sisters, just remember this. This is not what your mother taught you. It's not what your daddy taught you. My dad said talk is cheap, but I want you to remember this. According to the gospel, willingness and wanting is more important than doing. Willing and wanting is more important than doing. You say, why is that? Because if it's for God, it wasn't birthed in you, it was given by God to you. And if you read Proverbs chapter 14 or 15, it will tell you that if you give to God without a willingness, He views all giving to Him, whether by effort, money, or whatever, He views it as witchcraft. So the very willingness to give to His cause is birthed in you. And that's why I can tell you truthfully, willing and wanting is higher than doing. Paul is saying, the willing and wantingness you have in you, now do it. Now that tells me something about when Jesus came. Jesus must in eternity past must have been willing and wanting to come redeem us. And so one day happened. God said, do it. And He did it for you. What did He do? He became poor that you might become rich. Blessed Savior. That's why we're going to end this service with I surrender all. Fulfill your commitment. I want to read this to you because you may need to share this with some of your friends who are in churches with pastors that are struggling with burdens they would never ever admit. This is from William Still. It's entitled I've Told You Number Four, Fulfill Your Commitments. But this is his devotional October 15th, Look After the Minister. Listen to these words. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, 17 and 18, it says, The elder who directs the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. The scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. This is from a man that pastored one church for 52 years, and there is no doubt survived many a schism. Should it not be thought a thing most dishonorable that some ministers of God who regularly feed the flock upon the finest wheat and upon the choicest dainties of God, heavenly board, dainties God, His God's charcuterie board, should receive in return a penance. A penance might either feed or clothe them but scarcely enough to meet the fundamental bills that keep pouring in to even the humblest of homes. There is nothing material that can reward a person... Now listen, if you're listening, say amen. There is nothing material that can reward a person for the wrestling of the soul which makes the spiritual ministry possible. There's no payment for that. Nor a spiritual person seek for such material reward, but only for the joy of the fellowship with his Lord in the ministry together with all that is due in the place of Christ's body. Yet it is the responsibility of those who are blessed with such ministers to provide equal comfort, according to the Bible, equal comfort of life for them as they provide for themselves. They may think it would not be good for their minister to be spoiled, I remember in post they would I would that's when I really became into my preaching and they would come up and they would say, "Well, Brother James, we don't want to get you the big give you the big head, but boy, that one was out of the park." And the idea is that somehow I would become spoiled by that. Does one even think that having wrestled all week over giving such a sure word that the last the first thing I would do is go home and boast in myself? Many men are poor in the ministry today because people think it will spoil them. Robert, you have a friend that's struggling. You've told me about in a church. That is, I mean, it's like, do you go get a, is he to get another job? Do you understand that the Bible says the men who preach the gospel, they're to live off of it. For them to have to be turned out to go get a job where they are established in preaching the gospel is an abomination to that church. Especially if he lives below how they live. But such thinking by no means abrogates their responsibility, nor will it find... Now listen, this is what's hard. And Robert, I'm going to give this to you to give to that pastor we've talked about. Nor will they find a truly spiritual person so easily spoiled. A man of God, you're not going to be able to spoil him. If he's a man of God, you can't spoil him. He's got mature, He's got a whole different kind of worldview. Greedy Christians who selfishly hoard their goods will land in heaven without an Adam's experience of God's willingness to provide for daily needs. They're never going to know in this life what it's like to live off your daily bread. I remember when Rick lost his job after all those years at Saffron, sitting there at Cracker Barrel. God meant that for a reason because that's where your discipling took place and a new friend was birthed with me. And I told you over and over again, God would... And I told you over and over again, He will see you through. And I didn't jump up and down and cause any biscuits to turn into stones or vice versa. I sat there. I said, look at me. Look at me. I told you. And it's happened. And it would happen. And it's not because I'm a prophet. I am not. I am James, your friend. But those who selfishly hoard everything, you will never know in this life what it is to like to live off of your daily bread from the hand of God. You'll never know it. What a terrible way to live. You will live throughout all of eternity never fully able to praise God for His provision and providence because you will never suffer Loss in heaven. And on this earth, in hoarding for your time and your space and your finances, you will never know what it is like to eat from the Master's hand. And that's why His men of God must be poor. So they can tell, guys, what it's like. There is no faith like those who have had hungry stomachs filled by the direct intervention of God. Those who have trusted God in this way will trust Him for all. This is the heart of the Macedonian church. That Paul is not commanding the Corinthians to become like. He's cajoling them because you know what? I can see it in your eyes. Some of you in here, you want to rise up militantly. said, so the heck, I'm going to do this. Lord, even make it so for me. I want to know what it's like to eat from your hand when there is nothing else. I want to know what it means when they call you and You're negative at the bank. You're negative at the loan. You're negative with everything. Your car's been taken. Your health insurance is gone. You got cancer, everything. Lord, I want to know what it's like. Listen, you don't have to become a charismatic preacher in a white suit that speaks all kinds of languages to know this stuff to speak of God's provision. When you've tasted the real stuff, nothing else will settle. That's why the prosperity gospel was birthed straight out of hell. Even Jesus didn't turn the stones into bread. And last of all, brothers and sisters, look, there's a purpose for this. There is a blessing in this, and this is the blessing. Number five, write it down, mutual giving and receiving. Mutual giving and receiving. Look at verses 12, 13, look at verses 13, 14, 15. For this, for this is not for ease of others and your affliction, but it is the way of equality. At this present time your abundance being a supply for their needs so that their abundance may become a supply for your need that there may be equality for as is risen. He who has gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little had no lack. Let me just tell you what this means without using any of the notes. I'm just going to use my IQ. Look at me and listen. He is not saying to them, that the church at Jerusalem has to be of the same balance sheet as the church at Philippi and Macedonia and Berea and Corinth. It doesn't have to do that. He's not saying they have to all have equal outcome. That's what you see today wokeness is. Wokeness says, I don't want equality, I want equal outcome. I have a Ph.D., somebody that doesn't have one, and somebody that doesn't have one wants to go be a professor at Harvard, and they haven't put in the sweat to do it, whereas I could do it, and I wouldn't, put the, I wouldn't give a drop of sweat to do it. You understand? But I earned it, and my family has the scars to prove it. But the reality is that's an equal outcome. So it's not even talking about equality. Women are equal to men. It's talking about equality of outcome. I'll give you an example. Talking about the glass ceiling. There's not enough women in CEO positions in the nation. Guess what? It is disproportionate to the men and women. That's not an equality issue because there are not very many bricklayers proportionate to the society either in America. That's not equality. That's, equi- that's wanting equity of outcome. How come we're not having more women become bricklayers and masons and stone, and stone builders and foundation people? How come we don't have as many women uh, sewer workers as there are men? You see, the issue is not equality. The issue is sameness. But what Paul is talking about here is not that kind of equality. Paul is saying, look, The Philippian church gave, and the Berean church gave over and above what was even needed. And he is telling the church at Corinth, you made a commitment to help the church at Jerusalem. And he says, now fulfill it. Do it. And then he says, because they're in need now, but the need that you meet one day will be turned around for when you are in need and it will come back. And what does that mean? That means something very clear. Mutual giving and receiving. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2. Carry each other's burdens. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, listen... Listen, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Carry each other's burden and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. This mutual giving and receiving. What is the law of Christ? Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I cannot believe that I am so privileged to be able to tell you that truth. I wouldn't trade any of my situation for the opportunity to look at you as my friends to tell you that truth. Because great is our God and His Son. And one thing that makes the journey kind of unique, most of us believe this stuff. It's real. And when you're looking at cancer, one thing when I shaved my hair off this morning, I revealed a deep cut here of the brain surgery. I guess I learned it then. I didn't know if I was going to live or die. My dad had great insurance. We had the best doctor we could find at the time. You know, everybody has the best doctor that ever lived. Well, I'd, I probably had the second best because the surgeon, there were only two in the country. One was in Boston. The Sparkmans were there about that time. They probably didn't need any more Texans in Boston. And the other one was in Dallas, a UT grad. God help me. You think I've got problems, there it is. But at least I have a reason, not an excuse. I'm brain damaged. But I probably had the second best doctor in the world. But I knew then what has kept me today is fallen and as shameful as I am. There is no Christian that is ever so poverty stricken like the Philippian and Berean churches that have the wherewithal to return loving service if all they have is just heartfelt gratitude for a God that saved them. Paul is telling them, fulfill your commitment financially. I am telling you, I am advising you, you all have been gifted with talents and gifts and abilities. Fulfill the commitment you made to Christ when you made Him His Savior and serve His church. Don't wait for me to show you what you need to do. Service is better when God plays it in your heart. We have no chairman and no committee in this church, but we do have a chairman. And that's Rick, and he sets up the chair. He's the chairman. But God put that on His heart to do it, and He's the guy that cuts or folds the bulletins for you. He's here at 9 o'clock and makes a coffee unless I beat him. He leaves here, comes back and cleans. We have a janitor. She's here. She cleans the bathroom. Then I go get them dirty again. And I don't tell her. I have to clean them. But I live with her, so I don't tell her. Don't tell her. I said that. Ladies and gentlemen, I can close with these words. I know it's late, but who cares? You're not going to get this time again. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Era of salvation, purchase of God, filled with His goodness, washed in His blood. Is that your story? That was the story of the churches of Macedonia. That became the story at Corinth. That became the story at Jerusalem. And because it became the story, it's the story in Gainesville and all over. These are truths that transform Do not give out of yourself, out of what you lack. All God wants you to do is be willing with what you have and He'll use it. And what you have is enough. Amen. Amen. To the glory of God. Let us pray.